been doing a lot of cooking and baking and stuff. Oh, my, my audio levels are very high. Let me just lower that a little bit. <laughs> Everyone just turned off the turned off the episode. They're deaf now. They can't hear it. Yeah, well, we I'm need gonna, to I'm do also something. coughing into the mic. I don't have coronavirus. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure, too. I don't have corona. I don't know. Do you have time to, like, bake more intricate stuff during this period i i'm trying to i was gonna bake bread but everybody else had the same idea yeah what the hell i (laughs) i've been trying to i'll i'll tell you in a bit what i've been working on but but yeah what's going on with that is did we just think that we're just gonna go into a famine i have no idea i just went to get yeast from kroger and there was none Unless you want to put it in, like, your smoothies. And I was like, how about no? So I thought I'd wait a couple days. I'll go to Aldi because they're my MVP. They normally have stuff. And check it out then. But I tried a no-yeast bread. It turned out okay. It wasn't bad. Um, I've just been trying to cook more So, like, lengthy. a matzo? Was it like a matzo? I, it wasn't, but it kind of had the texture of it. It is the season. It is. Well, I just watched uh, Bon Appetit where they made matzo ball soup and I was thinking about it. So oh that's very... my, I haven't had matzo ball soup in ages because of course. I just want some. Australia. Um, not to say that there isn't like Jewish cuisine in Australia. There is. I just haven't found it yet. Yeah. New York was very plentiful. I'm sure you're like. Oh, I mean, like Delhi City. I mean, American Jewish cuisine, I would say, I think originated in New York. So, you know, you've got you got stuff like Katz's Delicatessen, things like that, that whole that whole grouping and blending of different aspects of Eastern European Jewish backgrounds in one environment just led to some of the best, best American cuisine, which I could probably do a whole we should do a whole episode of food. I mean, like, yeah. I mean, at this point, who cares about themes? We're having a quarantine. We're having a, a plague. Let's just go crazy. Um, I'm going to be making or attempting to make this weekend the swimming pool cake, which to my Australian listeners, that probably means something to you. To my Americans, not so much. So in the 1980s, there was a smash sensation cookbook came out called and it's got a mil- it's like such a long name so i'm going to butcher it but it's the australian women's weekly children's book th- ch- sorry children's cake book that's a mouthful of a title but essentially because this was the time before we had like fondants and really advanced things that could turn your cake into like a really you know a more malleable artistic creation this is just like using frosting and candy to turn to give like your kid like themed cake so there's one that looks like a hedgehog there's one that looks like a plane there's one that's like a dress or like a doll but the the most infamous one was the swimming pool cake because it's designed to look like a swimming pool and it's jelly that's used as the water in the swimming pool so picture like um just like a regular like round cake but the center is cut and like a little bit hollowed out, not completely hollowed out, but just like the top is cut into and it's filled with jelly, which I don't know if jelly in Australia is the same as what we Americans think of as jelly. I'm about to find out tonight when I make this thing. I suspect it's a little bit different. It's hard because all of the like a lot of the language we use 
even though English is spoken both in America and Australia, a lot of the verbiage and vocabulary is different. And it's really hard to unpack that. So when I'm like, so is it like a jelly, like a jam? My, you know, everyone's like, nah, mate, it's like a jelly. I'm like, no, no, that, no. But like, is it like a marmalade? They're like, no, it's a jelly. I'm like, okay. This doesn't answer my question. Thank you for trying. Is it like jello? I have no idea. I have no idea. I tried to ask my partner and he was like, it's a jelly. And I'm like, again, I'm like, so it was That's like, not an answer. and then I tried to actually go one step further and be like, all right. Are you familiar with the Jelly Baby, which is a British confection, most famously eaten by the fourth doctor in Doctor Who in the 1970s? And he's like, yeah, yes. Jelly Babies. It's like, we have them here. I'm like, great. Got it? Okay. Is it like that jelly? He's like, nah. I'm like, okay. So <laughs> so is it similar to that? Like, nah. Okay, cool. So what's it like? It's like a jelly. <laughs> Who's on first? Who's on first? But in jelly form. <laughs> I just can't win. And also the cake has, as part of like the architecture, has musk sticks, which is, I'm going to talk about that in the next episode because that would take at least a solid couple of minutes. But anyways, updates. Um, I'm unemployed as of this week because of a little thing called the Rona. Um, so send me money on Patreon. Uh, <laughs> that's that story. Uh, I'm also unemployed because of the so Rona. So send Courtney money on Patreon. Yeah, so I I figured why not do a PayPal so if you don't want to do like a full commitment, I can... I think you could do one-off donations. Can you on Patreon? I haven't figured that out. Maybe I should do a PayPal. Maybe I'm wrong. I just count it as a tip jar. I'm like, would yeah. you like to tip me? Yeah. I already work for tips anyway, so let's just continue this. Well... I will be sending you <laughs> this is so gross and like ugh, I'm just putting this out there on camera to make me seem like a good person. Uh I'll be sending you a tip. Don't worry. Oh, you don't have to. You're not Your obligated. Friend... Oh, Your friendship's okay. a tip enough. <laughs> I always feel uh, really embarrassed when my friends do it because I'm just like, guys. What? Uh other than that, I'm back to school, which is weird and really cool. Only now it's online because everything is terrible. I started a sport, which is neat. Uh by which I mean I did tended one session and then everything went to, you know, everything crapped the bed and so we can't do it anymore. But um I've taken up <laughs> I've taken up wrestling. Ooh, fun. I thought you were so, gonna say Aussie like, rules football. No, this is, I would actually say, so wrestling in its real form is actually probably the least, like, impact sport, because you're really just, it, it's like playing body, like, like body chess is mm -hmm. really what I could compare it to. Um, I and two other guys went to it, like, two friends of mine, we were all really awkward and embarrassed, because, like, ew, we're gonna have to touch each other, and then we we're just like, oh, you don't really think about it. Uh, and turns out I'm good at throwing people to the ground, which, you know, who knows, maybe that'll come handy if society breaks down. But yeah, no, it was really fun for the one time we did it. And now, um, they're doing an online training class, which will be fun. I'll be doing that. But otherwise, yeah. Anyways, life, plague. Oh, uh, we need a historic plagues episode. <laughs> Do we? To remind uh, us we can all get through this. Like, it's happened before, guys. We're gonna be okay. 
<sighs> we won't be the same, but we'll get through this. What is the most inventive thing you've made during the quarantine? And then we can go into um, talking about the past. The most invent- seems like a lot more comforting place than the pre- the present. Yeah, the most inventive thing I've made. It wasn't actually like food wise, but I was re- trying to record a my stovetop. And so I took my tripod, and this is, I thought this was really inventive. To balance it out, I have, like, the Cafe Bustello bricks of coffee. (laughs) And so I used it as a counterbalance. So my phone would fall into the hot stove and my phone wouldn't die. I just thought that's really inventive and creative. Is that the yellow coffee with the red text? Yeah, I think so. Okay, that, let me just... Let me just check this so I make sure. Cafe Boo. Yes. That is such an iconic fixture of Washington Heights, where I lived for a few years in New York City. Um, I'm not a I was a I was gentrifying, let's be real. Mm-hmm. I even if I didn't want to, I was gentrifying, but I did like Washington Heights. It is an amazing community in New York City, uh, very historic, largely Dominican and mix of Puerto Rican. Cafe Bustello is just such an iconic symbol of Washington Heights. Um, they have like pins of it. It's so every time I see or hear Cafe Bustello, I just think of, you know, very interesting time in my life. Um, I've actually it's, never, I definitely drank it before. It's good though. It's so right. good. Yeah. So it's now produced by Smuckers. Are they like, ex- they're the ones who do the production stuff? Mm. And so I actually have a Cafe Bustello mug because my friend works for Smuckers. <laughs> my cousin <laughs> works for Smuckers. So, like, I have, like, it's so funny because I'll drink it out of the mug. And I'm just like, is this Inception <laughs> right now? Yeah, just everyone, because if, if, I mean, it's very, it just seems like a thing where it's, like, a specific culture or a group of people from who have a shared identity have like this thing and then it gets basically it blows up once wealthy or middle-class white people find it so mm-hmm. just if cafe bustello gets big which that would be great just remember just look into the history of it because it's um it's a pretty rich history huh rabbit hole uh, should i talk <laughs> about my favorite subject which is mammoths apparently do you want a mammoth fun fact uh, yes, I would. In the state of Ohio, you can buy a license plate that has a mammoth on it that supports uh, the History Center in the Historical oh. Society. Mm-hmm. It's my mammoth fact. I love <laughs> like, your mammoth fact. So mammoths, why do I love mammoths? Well, mammoths are just really cool. Um, if anyone's playing Animal Crossing right now, and I know you are, uh, I just got the mammoth skull donated to my museum. Because in Animal Crossing, which is an adorable life sim game by Nintendo, where you move into a town full of anthropomorphic animal friends, you can dig up fossils and donate them to the museum. And the curator of the museum, who is an owl, will tell you facts about anything you donate, which are pretty cool, to be honest. It's very (laughs) educational. So um, if you want to know what I've been doing in my life, Animal Crossing. So... This is this news comes to us from the Smithsonian Magazine, an article written by Brian Handwork. So in Russia, these archaeologists have stumbled across um, a circular a structure. 
built from the bones of 60 woolly mammoths, which, yes, and a lot of bones. Now, you might be wondering, what the heck? And that's what archaeologists are wondering, too. (laughs) I'm going to go with religion. So Alexander Pryor, an archaeologist at the University of Exeter, which is in the UK, says, clearly a lot of time and effort went to building the structure, so it was obviously important to the people that made it for some reason. So everyone's a little bit scratching their heads at what is what's going on here. They thought it might be a religious site, but uh, there's a lot of activity there, like you know, bone, like a bones from other animals that are in the area, uh, remnants of food scraps, uh, tools that just suggest that it was being used as like the people were camping near it. And there's sort of an argument, and this is the same argument we see when they talk about the site in Turkey known as Gobekli Tepe, which is, are these places used as places of worship? Or are they used as places of refuge? And can those two, two aspects ever coincide at that point in our history? I imagine if it's early enough, I don't see why, why it wouldn't, because I think you know what do i know about history or archaeology i just suspect that humans kind of arrived at the need for a delineation between a place of worship and a place of residence or refuge kind of further down the track but i'm kind of just pulling that from what i know i don't know the confirmation a real archaeologist can chime in so also if you think about it the catholic church used their cathedrals and religious places as a site of uh like uh sanctuary So it's not uncommon. Yeah, that is actually a good point. Yeah. So mammoth bone buildings are actually, this isn't the first time the structure has been found, though it is pretty impressive. These things can be found over all over Eastern Europe because humans were, mammoths and humans coincided. You know, we were alive at the same time, which is crazy to think about, but we were. Mammoths actually didn't, you know, go extinct all that long ago you know, in the grander scheme of history. So um, this site is called Kostenki. And people have been finding... It dates to around 22,000 years ago. And mammoths, I think, died 16,000 years ago. I'm going to go with you on that. I don't have a lot of... I think they either died 16,000 years ago or they died out in 16,000 BC. I forgot. But but yeah, it's, it's a pretty old site. It's really impressive. We're learning a lot about ancient man there and ancient mammoth. Um, But I guess the kind of the mystery is, you know, what were people doing here? So there were different clusters of mammoth houses made from the bones, which I think is really cool, um, that they found hearths. They found remnants of reindeer, horses, and fox, other remnants there. So it wasn't just mammoths that they were hunting, but mammoths were kind of clearly an intrinsic part of this culture. Um, which makes sense because, you know, they are pretty impressive beasts or were. The question remains, if people weren't living in the structure actively, why did they make the fire there? But, you know, you kind of just lit a fire as a utility wherever you went. So that could be the other thing that, you know, it was used as sort of a place of worship, but there was just fire there because that was just what you did. When you showed up or rocked up to a place, you created a fire. Um, There were a lot of fetched it. Like it was a very, wherever this area was at the, in at the time, geologically or environmentally, there was an abundance of vegetation that people could eat. So, you know, people were able to, sur- to survive there. But, you know, just the question remains, 
you know, why? What were people doing here? Why giant mammoth bones? What's going on? And, you know, this is such a, if there was some sort of religious aspect here, we really don't know a lot about the religions of ancient men, which is why things like Go Back Late Tepe, which I want to do a whole episode on, are so fascinating because, you know, at a certain point, we went from hunter-gatherers to an agrarian culture. And they believe that kind of that's when religion showed up. But again, my personal opinion, based piecing together what I know of humanity, is that I feel like religion would have come about way, you know, way sooner than that. I think we've always kind of had, and you know, as soon as we have the capacity to question and wonder, you know, religion in itself kind of stems from the earliest attempts at ironically a scientific method it's like you know if this happens why does it happen how can it be replicated and for all of the answers we didn't have we arrived at the assumption that it must be some sort of supernatural force that's beyond us that's my thought i I thought i was gonna be like and we're gonna put this baby to bed we didn't uh that's really just kind of my spiel cool mammoth bones neat (laughs) it's really fascinating because there's so many of them so it's like like a way station would be kind of interesting it'd be really unique as a viewpoint and it's in russia so it means they have made like man early man has made it this far which is really really cool because they made it that far out of africa and that's amazing and they were able to have like I, I kind of think it, it probably could be like a religious site or a way station or a marker. And it's kind of like an agreement you don't attack around here. <laughs> kind of like this is a safe spot. Yeah, that actually could make sense. You know, was this a place that people traveled to that was known in the area? That's what I'm wondering. Well, we need a TARDIS. We we'll do need a TARDIS. And figure this out. <laughs> uh, What's your story? So, I have an interesting story about tracking ancient trade routes through a purple dye. Okay. This is from fizz.org by Ludwig Maximilian from the University of Munich, if you couldn't tell. So, they it's a co-team of Germans and Tunisians. And they were serving an ancient city of Mannix on the island of Jerba to basically reconstruct trading links through an antiquity. So we got some good times. Because the port was well situated and protected, it allowed for a lot of ships to come in to its channel. So it opened up more trading along the coast. We know uh, they have already reconstructed the port's facility of Mannix. And it's off the coast of North Africa if you're looking for this island. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting that the archaeologists are already able to map it on this project. This was one of the most important trading centers in the time of the Roman Empire and connected to the Mediterranean. They're using magnometer surveys. So magnets, guys. Magnets. How do they work? I did not look that up. I'm not about science. <laughs> I only know the bare minimum of science that I know. They actually used this magnometer to map the unusual layout of the city. So the main streets ran parallel to the coast. So along the coastline. 
which is different. I, th- I would think most main streets would run from the port up to the center of the city. Yeah, because right? you'd want to go from the coast inland to like treaty stuff. Yeah. So after they did that, they then had exploratory excavations of, you know, certain temples and shrines and commercial and residential buildings to figure out, quote, we even discovered a well-preserved private bathhouse, which dates from the Roman imperial period and included mosaic floors, splendid wall paintings, and a range of statuary, end quote. So the head um, person Ritter said, really believed that they were successful and prosperous because of one product, purple dye. So like indigo? Um, it doesn't say what kind of color purple let me scroll through if they see it they don't have a picture of the color purple on this to show well indigo is kind of its own own thing so yeah um which they got from the sea snails murnix trundica trunculus is that where we get periwinkle (laughs) periwinkle from these are colors that aren't purple so i don't know why i keep saying this i don't because periwinkle is a snail, though. I think so, yeah. Quote, we have good reason to believe that the purple dyes from Minix were was not exported as such, but was used locally to dye textiles, which were then sold further afield, end quote. So basically they would dye the cloth there, and this material so valued would, was exported across the Mediterranean and beyond. Uh they, but so they're exporting cloth, but they're importing food, wine, domestic, fine domestic pottery, and marble from Italy, Greece, Spain, Asia Minor, and Egypt. So, it's a big trade city, and I guess if you're the top purple cloth producer, you can demand it. I, I just, I'm still stuck on the whole the streets running parallel to the coast <laughs> rather than because. Is it because the dye that they got, they wanted to, like, ship it out to somewhere that would have been parallel? Or has there been any sort of speculation as to why that is? Because it is pretty distinct. They didn't say in the article. Well, that's going to bug me. I'm going to guess they probably had connecting streets, but I haven't seen a big map of it. But my thought would be... You could probably, like, parade along and have people, like, go off to it. So you, you have to go along the coast. You have to go so far and then to get to your ship. So you have to be seen the length of the town instead of sloping down into the port. Oh, so, like, the ships would have multiple. Yeah, like, little streets off of it. Because that's kind of how ports are. They have a couple blockings off. And so you, c- you could be seen. Because, say... And then everyone kind of has views of the sea. You go along that way. Okay. Well, that's that good. Your... <laughs> we'll have to look up a map of it after this. So this settlement was actually founded in the 4th century BCE. And this is when the Carthaginians were still the top dogs in the area. They reached their top power menace during the 1st and 3rd centuries AD during imperial rome at the height of its power so probably the pax romana at that time they even had their own theater and other impressive uh urban structures adorned with like beautiful features it was well protected from attacks because of it has uh shallow bays and it's around it 
the harbor is only accessible by submarine channels, which you have to have a local pilot to navigate you. So basically, you're not getting into this port unless they want you to get in this port. Hmm. On top of doing their above-ground excavations, they have done underwater excavations investigations by the Bavarian Society for Underwater Archaeology, discovering not only traces of the original harbor facilities and the tricky passages to the docks, but a ton of wrecks and remains of piers. So there's probably more discoveries coming out of this. And they're planning to continue to basically excavate and discover this area. Interesting. Well, it'd be a, uh, I want to see what conclusion they arrive at with those streets. Um, my last That's one... the main concern. <laughs> the main concern is why are they parallel? I mean, that's my main concern. I mean, histor- historians might have a different prerogative than I do, but that's mine. Yeah. Uh, my th- last one is a little bit quieter than Mammoth Bone. Creepy temple discovered in the wilderness. Um, it is about... This is actually... This story reminded me of... Do you... I think it was the last episode of The Trove we did where that uh, art student discovered the Gustav Klimt painting underneath yes. the Gustav Klimt painting that then got <laughs> stolen by being fished out of a museum. So this reminded me of that. So Venice... Have you seen the pictures of Venice with like the 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 clear canals? Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. Now, I want to be clear some of <laughs> puns. I some of that is a little bit skewed or doctored cuz a lot of people are like, "Look at what happens when humans aren't there. Wildlife returns and thrives." Though <laughs> the clear canal thing is definitely that's real because there's just not a lot of maritime activity there now cuz everyone's in quarantine, which like honestly poor Italy they always get the worst of the plagues, don't they? It's it's so funny because everyone, like, the way it's kind of come is the same way. It came from Asia oh, to right. Europe. And everyone's saying this. I'm like, yeah, if you just look at travel situations, I guess it makes sense. I mean, yeah, because if you look at a, I mean, Italy or the city-states that became Italy on that region have always been smack dab in the middle of, like, two, like, several civilizations. So you've got the European ties to Italy. You have the African ties to Italy. You have the Middle Eastern ties to Italy. And you've got the Asia ties to Italy. So you had all of these people trading because it's such a – it's really just the geographic geographic and political nature of Italy that they're going to get people from – all over the world. Um, we found out, and I want to look into this because I, I'm always a bit dubious over the this the 23andMe DNA. We actually found out that we have uh, Arab or Middle Eastern ancestry, and not that far back. But mm. it's not. It's always kind of a tricky subject to try to unpack that, and because DNA is sort of imperfect science, and then you end up in you know, claiming that you're Native American when in fact that DNA strand is present in a lot of people. So I want to look into that more, but that's neither here nor there. Let's talk about swords. So Venice, um, in the middle of the Laguna Venice, there is a monastery and it's Armenian. 
It's an Armenian monastery called the Monastery of St. Lazarus. St. Lazarus, as we know, was the bloke who rose from the dead, I think, with Jesus's help. Yes. He was resurrected. So there was a PhD student who studies uh, kind of ancient world funerary objects, and her name is Vittoria Dalla Melina. And she, I think, is our age. At least she, I don't, I didn't see an age demarcation on her, which, I mean, it's good. We shouldn't be, I feel like it's kind of gross when people feel the need to attach ages to women. But I noticed that she looked like she could be our age, which got me excited because, like, yay, millennials. She was touring the monastery and she was shown this really pretty sword. So it's a metal sword, about 17 inches long. And she looked at it and she looked at the the placard and said this is a medieval sword and she saw that and she's like that is not a medieval sword that is very old what the heck is it doing here so <laughs> she she basically said quote unquote i noticed it immediately she then decided she needed to launch an investigation into it so the university of padua came into the picture the chemical composition done on it uh traces an uh ally that's an alloy that's made of uh bronze mixed with arsenic which i'd never heard of before or it's arsenical bronze maybe that has nothing to do with arsenic but i think that's my takeaway here um oh no it's an alloy of copper and arsenic i was right just needed to read further down on my own notes um, <laughs> well if you think about it arsenic has been used for other things like the victorians used it to get a really vibrant green wallpaper but and they also, also used it to, like, um, make themselves paler. Yeah, and then it would kill you. Mm. If you don't watch, there's a great documentary series, like, basically uh, what, like, your things in your house th- that will kill you. And they do, like, time periods, mostly in Britain. It's great. That's oh, yeah. why I found this out. England, it was like, don't touch the walls, don't touch the cookware, don't touch anything. Everything is poison. You will die. Also, you don't open your windows, so literally you're just circulating arsenic in your rooms. Oh, you didn't open the windows because they thought malaria just would get you. Wander in. Yeah. Like Corona. Uh, <laughs> so this this alloy was traced back to the 4th or 3rd millennium BC, roughly before the Bronze Age in earnest. Um, they have found swords like this before, but it's basically the long and the short of it is they thought this sword was from the middle ages it's actually from 5000 years ago so it's incredibly misdated um they think it was sent over by an engineer who was from the ottoman empire and had a friend at the monastery so he gifted it to them and there a little there's a little bit of conjecture on how he acquired it so that's a little bit of a mystery you know what have we learned from museums how or how you don't acquire something if it just wanders into your collection you say thank you and move on yeah especially in that time period so it's more than likely it came from probably just like a funeral uh mound possibly in turkey is what i kind of got here so or the ottoman empire but yeah weird Weird sword in a weird place discovered by a PhD student. So that's cool. This is why they're useful. Like, if we need enough people to get PhDs, that we can help continue these discoveries and have knowledge base. But unlike... Well, I mean, society's been literally put on pause. So who knows? 
You got plenty of time to get your PhD <laughs> while you're in quarantine. You have no just, distractions. Just take an online class. It's fine. Just get an online PhD. I'm sure it's fine. Uh, do you do you have a story to take us home, or are we done? I have a story to take us to the stars. Okay. I'm intrigued. <laughs> Seven billion-year-old stardust is found to be the oldest material ever to be found on Earth. Ah, look at that. Found in your neck of the woods. Wait, Australia or Connecticut? Yes, uh, Australia. I know this is a pretty big geographic difference between those types of things, but... I was just going with Australia because I'm in the U.S. Yeah, sure. (laughs) You're you're half of the globe. So Merkinson, Victoria, has fewer than a thousand people living in it, but has one of the most important sites in the history of astronomy. So tiny area. We found in 1969, a huge meteorite fell to Earth, broke up, scattering all over the south of the town. Took decades for researchers to get out there. And they have discovered inside those fragments, within those grains, researchers have determined there's 5 billion to 7 billion year old, so older than our solar system. Think about that. Stardust. In those broken up meteorites. And in case you're wondering, our solar system formed around 4.6 billion years ago. So our solar system was just a glimmer in the universe's eye. So then what's it doing there? It was from the meteor. It broke up. It was just from one of those. So Oh, so it just was a component. So this meteor traveled from somewhere mm-hmm. that was made before our solar system. Yeah, and broke up over Australia. That's nuts. (laughs) Yeah. So, quote, this is one of the most exciting studies I've ever worked on, end quote, says Philip Heck, who is a geophysicist at the Field Museum of Natural History, which is in Chicago. And he's the first one to write about the sand. Quote, these are the oldest solid materials ever found, and they tell us about how the stars formed in our galaxy, end quote. So if you want to read more of their studies, it's published in the Journal of Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And basically, it describes how they examined the 40 grains, 40 grains of stardust taken from the Berkison meteorite three decades ago. They had to study the isotopic elements of neon. Oh, that's my favorite element. And that interacted with the cosmic rays of space. I have no idea about the science, guys. Uh, basically, they, with the exposure to cosmic rays, which they describe as high energy particles that zip across the universe, creating these isotopes of neon. So that's how neons form, guys, I guess. And the amount of them actually determined, of neon, determined the stardust age. It was pulled through, like the grains of stardust were pulled through the meteorite as it journeyed throughout space. So the longer it journeys throughout space, the more it collects, the older it is. They determined that the majority of the grains formed before our sun's birth and are older than even 5 billion years old. So there's some youngins in there, about 5 billion years old, some older ones. But the key thing is it can tell us how space was before our solar system, which is insane. Quote, we have more young gra- young grains than we expected. Our hypothesis is that the majority of grains formed in an episode of enhanced star formation. There was a time 
before the start of the solar system when more stars form than normal, end quote. So that kind of blows our mind because we don't think about stars forming very often. I don't. That's crazy. It does have uncertainties, but basically they, they think they're pretty conclusive in their results and can help us more about the formations of stars in the Milky Way. So it can just teach us how our solar system, our galaxy, was formed. Yeah. All from this one town in Australia. <laughs> and in Victoria. Uh, cool. Wow. That's sobering. <laughs> <laughs> um, Courtney, where can people find you? You can find The Cult of Domesticity, which at our time of recording has just celebrated 100 episodes Yay! on all podcast. And Maxwell's been on quite a few of them, I think. Um, yeah, to the Persian and- princess. That was a ride. Check that episode out. Oh, and Anne Boleyn. Oh, yeah. Her- uh, Have you seen Six? No. Okay, so it's a musical about it's a rock musical, as I understand it, about um, the the six wives of Henry VIII, and they're all the main characters, and they sing about being the wives of Henry VIII, and apparently it's great. It's I'm so about this. I don't know if it's come to America yet, but it's here in Australia, and I know that it, I think it originated. I'm going to assume from the West End, like everything else does in mm-hmm. England, but but yeah, check it out. I feel I'll like see, it would be your thing. Uh, they've been putting a lot of musicals online right now. I know. It's great. Quarantine. Did, did you know that they... I embarrassed myself on Twitter. I don't know if you saw this exchange. Do you know that they had a Prince of Egypt musical adaptation? Like, Well, Prince of Egypt was an animated musical from yes. either the early 2000s or the late 90s it, that tells the story of Moses. It's great. Uh, the music is it's great. It's fantastic. It's phenomenal. It was not Disney. I forget who it was. Was it, was it DreamWorks? It might have been DreamWorks. I, I remember the animation being pretty stellar because it was still 2D. But they, I think, just premiered or were doing rehearsals or something at the West End. That was the adaptation of The Prince of Egypt. And then it stopped because coronavirus. So Corona! I, coronavirus! I just... <laughs> I was on Twitter being like, they should turn this new musical and all of my um, gay New York musical buff... Uh, friends on twitter were like queen you're an embarrassment look at this it's been on me it was gonna go on stage look at this and i was like oh, okay fine i stand corrected um but sorry to yeah. sidetrack wow just it'll go on your bloopers for patreon now it's gonna stay in this episode i don't have the time to edit it out well courtney cult of cult of domesticity everywhere you can find it on facebook twitter instagram search for it instagram if you're looking for some interesting cooking instagram stories during this period i'll be doing them i will put up pictures of the cake the, the swimming pool cake so you can judge it you'll get uh, uh, uh cultney <laughs> or you'll have cultney and spoopney judge your cake oh my gosh yeah um <laughs> so please donate to courtney and also donate to me <laughs> Uh, we do have a PayPal. I just checked the website. It's on the Relic website, but otherwise, relic.com, sorry, patreon.com slash relic. You can do a one-time donation there or just sign up. We actually do have a kind of monthly, somewhat updated series of exclusive content there. I usually do short episodes 
um, that I just can't fit into a full length one. It goes there. I just did one on the lost, the lost episodes of Doctor Who, which is actually a really fascinating rabbit hole to to go down because it talks a little bit about um, media and how that was treated back in the day before syndication. But but yeah, that's that's it. Oh, also connect with me on Twitter at Lost Treasure Pod. That's it. Bye. Oh, oh b- bye. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. Bye. Does. But no, no, bye. bye. Go away. <laughs>